Welcome listeners to another edition of the PigX podcast and first one here in 2023. I'm your host, Delaney Howell. Today's discussion is going to be a two-part series, joined first by Dr. Christine Mainquist-Wiggum, the Director of Health at Pill and Family Farms. Then, after the break, Dr. Chris Rodemaker joins in to discuss more in-depth some of the research that Christine has overseen. So let's get right to it. We're here at Iowa State's campus, and you are an Iowa native and just a Nebraska transplant. Yeah, so grew up in southwest Iowa, did uh, vet school here at Iowa State, and been living in Nebraska now for six years, working for uh, for Jim and Pill and Family Farms. So with your role as the director of health, what are you doing day to day? Yeah, so it it's always different. You know, every day is a, a fun surprise, um, but we've got 75,000 sows, so oversee the health of them, the nursery finish system, and then um, also overseeing the health of our DNA nucleus herds. So a lot of that is, you know, reviewing protocols, but also disease workups, um, you know, big system health and, and constant improvement. And a lot of the constant improvement you're doing is due to some of the research that you're doing, including things like the elimination diet technique. Let's start out with what is that? Yeah, so back in uh, 2016, we're, you know, looking for ways to improve livability and we're fed up with all these different protocols and excessive medications and excessive work required to to get this, you know, survivability that we're hoping for. So we implemented the elimination diet technique, pulled everything back. So stripped down all the meds, all of the interventions and say, hey, we're gonna take it back to basics and identify root cause. So after we stripped it all down, you know, slowly add back in an intervention and measure what difference did we make for survivability and growth. Um, So since that time in 2016, up until, you know, constant improvement today, we've been able to find, you know, a handful of things that are staples to for us, at least for management, health, nutrition practices to keep our pig livability where we want it to be. And like you said, there obviously every swine system is a little bit different. So what you found works may be a little different for other swine systems, but tell us about some of those practices. What are the things that when you strip them away and you were able to have a control, what were the really big key indicators that you were able to uh, take out of that? Yeah, so our mantra is read the pig. So throughout all this process, it was, are we meeting the pig's needs? So absolutely, we're using production values to measure our interventions, but um, I mean, it's it's pretty simple. Uh, keep the pig warm, keep the pig dry, and uh, you know, keep it up eating and drinking. So feed water and air. And once those needs were met and it's comfortable, um, really the rest was fairly easy and took care of itself. Yes, there's a few things we can do here and there, but keeping it stress-free and and happy um, was really the key to success. So for those of our listeners that are in the swine system or have hogs that they're raising, they're trying to think through what are some key factors that I should look to control for. So tell us about how you went about stripping it down to the basis and adding those factors back in, how can they set this up on their own operations? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely took a big risk pulling, pulling everything out um, and realized, you know, maybe we're not fully ready to, to go completely, you know, maybe med-free or whatever it was that we did initially. But, I, you know, just to share some things that worked, um, 
sanitation was a big deal. Removing stressors from the nursery. So we were giving a couple of vaccinations and um, we we really adopted some technology. So we installed cameras in the rooms to be able to watch pig behavior and comfort. And through that, we were able to really um, see what's stressing the pig out. So those vaccines, you could see afterward, they were lethargic, they weren't starting, you know, they, they weren't staying on feed. Um, so that was a key indicator, hey, maybe this is something we need to do differently. We were also able to observe, what are we doing with air? That's so hard to measure. If you're only in a barn for, you know, maybe 10 minutes touring. You don't know what that pig's doing in the middle of the night. You don't know what he's doing later in the day. So watching cameras, observing inlets, um, air movement, pig laying behavior, uh, piling, those types of things wouldn't have been possible if we hadn't utilized these cameras. So that was just such a critical part to identifying these stressors. But like you mentioned there, it was high risk to do this in the first place. So what was the factor to lead to deciding to do all of that? Yeah, so the impetus behind this whole process was really Jim Pillen. And then the second generation, Brock and Sarah, our company has a culture of excellence and we want to be the best at what we do. So where we were sitting in 2016 was not where we believed our best to be. So really it was only up from there and being a family owned company, it's just awesome to have the the working environment and the group of people that we have to brainstorm, be collaborative, and then make an impact and make change. And again, lots of risk behind making change, but in some instances it's much needed. So Pillin Family Farms might be a little larger than some of the listeners that we have on the PigX podcast here, but for those that are maybe attempting or looking at doing things, but on a much more scaled down version, you know, technology is great to have in your system, but there's new technology every year. So it's sometimes hard to keep up with it and maybe feel like you're keeping up with the Joneses to some extent. So what advice do you have to producers or to people working in the swine industry to stay up to date and feel like they're still implementing and trying new things, but also understanding that sometimes that's not entirely possible. Yeah, actually, our motto is cutting edge, not bleeding edge. So we have the same same thoughts, but you know the cameras were great. We had all these sites, so it allowed us to look at different sites, but you can accomplish the same thing just by spending time in the barns with the pigs. We saw maybe caretakers would go in for a few minutes, and during that time, pigs were active and stressed, and the environment was not the same as when caretakers weren't in there choring, but you can sit in there and and spend some time with them and be able to evaluate the same things and not have to use the, the technology. Now, talk to us a little bit more about some of the specific research that was done in the barns and some of the results that you found. Probably the key takeaways are if you're making a change, record it. So a lot of this is all it's field research that's being done. We're lucky to have multiple replicates. We have large barns. We can do a lot of trials on a barn to barn basis. But for a lot of these changes that we made, we'd have mo- like hundreds of barns on trial. So we felt really good that, yes, this change makes sense and it's repeatable. So the sanitation, going in and applying a alkaline detergent, we saw, I'd have to double check, was like three quarters of a percent decrease in mortality just from applying detergent through the sanitation process. And that was repeatable time after time. We switched our vaccination protocol from being done in the nursery, which was a little bit stressful for them, to earlier in the sow farm. And then same thing, using our production records to measure mortality, feed conversion, average daily gain, and feed intake. So having large numbers of farms helped us to feel that there was validity to the data, but absolutely 
keeping track of every single change we made so we can go back and, and verify the results. So Chris and Christine, I'm excited because we've gotten some of the basics from your recent presentation, Christine. Now we're going to have a little bit of a discussion here. Chris obviously is a clinical professor and swine extension veterinarian at Iowa State University and is a longtime guest of the podcast, but I'm excited to have a discussion and get Chris, as you say, back to the basics with some data. So I'd love to kick it off there and talk a little bit more about some of the data, Christine, that you work with. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of this, it really started in in our higher health pigs. You know, when we're dealing with health challenges, a lot of times that takes precedence. But when we don't have these ma- major health challenges, you know, we're expecting peak performance. And we weren't really seeing that peak performance like we had expected. So kind of needed to take a step back and say, okay, what what do we need to do differently here? How do we want to approach this and how do we want to analyze this? So it really was, let's let's get back to the basics and, and kind of strip it down and then build it back up. Our approach was to pretty much remove all interventions that were occurring, whether that was, you know, feed additives, different medications, some of our more extreme management practices, you know, just kind of broke it back down and said, all right, we're going to start at ground zero and start adding back things back in. And oh, by the way, we're going to make sure that we do this systematically, one intervention at a time when we start adding things back in. And we're going to make sure that we, you know, keep a log, record it, and then follow up with our production data afterward to to get a real sense of what impact did we make from these interventions. Yeah, Christine, I think that's really the key, right? It's so often it's so easy to, oh, let's add this, let's add that, you know, and because so much of life in commercial production is when you look at those type of things, you probably don't have the time necessarily always to say, well, okay, we're going to do a controlled trial where we're going to split barns and, and do all that. So, so much of the stuff that we do is before and after, but if you don't have a way to be able to track that in the data, you know, or some sort of log like you referenced, it's hard to be able to go back and know, well, so remind me what we all did again. I really appreciated some of the things that you did in your presentation because you did make those efforts to make those logs recorded that in enough batches with enough statistical replication that you could have it analyzed and still felt like you uh, you had some improvements, particularly about your sanitation program. I, I was kind of curious how you got to the program that you guys are using today. What was the process like and how did you decide what things to add in, what stuff was really important versus stuff that maybe we thought was important, but didn't turn out to be as important? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it stemmed from, we have these brand new nurseries, state-of-the-art. Um, we have some fairly large sites. So there are you know, eight barn hotel-style nurseries, but each barn holds around 1,500 pigs. So we had a lot of pigs on site and you'd walk through and everything should be going great, but it just seemed like we were, the, the mortality, the morbidity, the treatments that were being required, it, it just didn't make sense. So walking through the sites, you know, taking time to look at the pigs, assess the sites, Sanitation, particularly, it seemed like after we wash and disinfect a room, you'd still walk through and you could feel this film on the floor. They're plastic floored nurseries. Um, but it really took, you know, doing some inspection saying, Hey, maybe our sanitation program, you know, maybe we need to up our game. So we had looked at some different options. We were not using a detergent at that time. It was just a hot power wash and a disinfectant. 
Um, but seeing those biofilms felt like we needed to take a, an approach with a detergent. So we uh, settled on an alkaline detergent, which it's got that degreasing capability. And then, like you said, we power in numbers with field trials. So a lot of it would be a before and after, but there would have been some that were occurring at the same time. And, and we felt like having the numbers really on the barns made a lot of sense. So our detergent application, we applied an alkaline detergent for 30 minutes with a foam tip, came in, power washed with hot water, disinfected. And we saw a dramatic drop in mortality with the use of detergent. So we ended up having 164 barns on trial with no detergent, 176 barns with detergent, and uh, did see a statistical difference in mortality. And that was about 1.15% difference just by using a detergent. Now, these are healthy pigs. It's not like we had disease challenges going on here. So that was kind of our first step of saying, okay, hey, we can make an impact. And quite honestly, our, our power washing team, they won't go without it now. It shortened the the power wash time. So it was kind of a win-win for everybody. Yeah, that makes it a whole lot easier when the people who actually are doing the work or applying, they can see a difference that makes the buy-in uh, a whole lot more easier to implement in those sort of situations. Absolutely. And, and through all of this, you know, we include our our farm teams and and our you know different team members in different areas of the business to make sure that we do get buy-in. Because if it's one person making a decision from far away, the compliance just isn't there. Yeah, that's a great step. And do you think you guys could see anything from a clinical standpoint? Uh, was it a situation where you were dealing with some enteric disease before you started to use the detergent? And then afterwards, you saw the mortality drop for sure. But did you see much clinically? Could the people and the, the caretakers tell a difference? Yeah, absolutely. So prior to this, we were struggling with rotavirus early nursery, a lot of enteric challenges, a lot of our drug treatments were targeted at enterics. And after doing this, there are no enteric challenges, can't pick up rotavirus, no E. coli. So it's made a huge difference clinically. Yeah. So it almost feels like in those situations, you know, we, we understand that some pathogens obviously come with pigs, but that there maybe was an environmental contamination issue to a lot of those nursery enteric issues that you were having. Yeah, that's our belief. Very interesting. Another one that really kind of piqued my interest was vaccination program. So there's always been lots of debates about particularly circovirus and mycoplasma. That's pretty standard within the industry across lots of different companies to do that. And I thought that was really unique, novel approach. There's always been this debate and discussion between, okay, well, I know I've got to get two doses in. I know when I do it on the South Farm, the compliance is better, but I start to get concerned about, well, is there maternal interference? If I give it too early, is it better to wait and give the second dose out into the nursery? So tell us a little bit about your guys' experience with that and how you wound up making the decision to implement the protocol that you did. Yeah, so I'd I'd helped vaccinate a few of these sites. And so again, pretty large sites. And that mid-nursery shot, so we were on a traditional day prior to weaning and then three weeks placed in the nursery. And we go in and do this three weeks placed shot. It was not only stressful for the team members to vaccinate, you know, 14,000 pigs, but it was stressful for the pigs. You're not able to pick up these pigs because they're so large. So, you know, you're crowding and you're trying to shoot. It's a stressful event. And a lot of times we would see maybe an E. coli break following the vaccination or a parasuous break, something related to that stress. So kind of took a step back and say, what can we do differently to not have to vaccinate these pigs 
mid-nursery. So did some work up front, did look at maternal antibody titers in piglets and farrowing. So we did feel comfortable that there wasn't going to be a lot of maternal antibody interference for circovirus. We're giving an ileitis vaccine at the same time. So we also checked ileitis titers and mycoplasma titers and felt comfortable. I mean, they weren't for circovirus, they weren't negative, but they were low enough that we were like, okay, we're going to try pushing this early. So that's what led us to the three-day and three-week program. Also taking people and labor into account. Our sow farms are extremely disciplined. We have the people there to do it. We're also already picking these pigs up. So three days of age, they're getting processed. They're already being picked up. An extra vaccine wasn't a huge time commitment to do it at that time. We're already vaccinating the day prior to weaning. So really, again, it's a win-win. It's one less interaction with pigs by removing a nursery shot. So there would have been some of this also that would have been at the same time, but some of it would have been before and after. We had total 328 barns on trial. 187 barns would have been the traditional late vaccination timing. 141 barns would have been our early vaccination timing. And we wanted to look at everything, mortality, feed intake, feed conversion, and gain. Because part of that, you go in at three weeks and you you hit them with the vaccine they're going off feed during that time too. So we wanted to capture that. And what we saw was a significant difference in actually all four metrics. So our feed intake improved, our feed conversion improved, gain went up and mortality improved. So, you know, it's hard to pick up a mortality difference statistically. I think having the barn, the number of barns helped, but we reduced mortality again by three quarters of a percent. So even with the additional cost of vaccinating some pigs at three days of age that aren't going to make it to weaning, we still came out ahead 55 cents a pig just from the growth conversion and mortality differences that we saw. So implemented this, but then, you know, you always wonder the the maternal antibody data says we shouldn't have issues, but we need to verify. So part of this program then was making sure we're doing due diligence in the finisher and collecting samples, doing some routine sampling for PCV2, just to verify that those diseases weren't showing up and they weren't and haven't been. So this program has been in place since 2018, still in place today. Yeah, and I got to imagine the quality of the vaccination is probably a lot better, too. Like you say, in the South Farm, we have the luxury of usually having enough labor. And like you say, we're already picking up those pigs and we truly can vaccinate those pigs, you know, one pig at a time compared to in the nursery situation where we get really big and too hard to handle individually. So we kind of crowd them up and we attempt to vaccinate them. I I would guess the quality of the vaccination is, is pretty different, too. Oh, absolutely. You know, some of our farms that have a higher wean age that it can get a little bit tricky when you're trying to pick up a 20 plus pound pig. But for the most part, every pig's getting picked up prior to weaning. And, you know, just anecdotally, it's been interesting to watch doing the day prior to weaning. Those pigs are still on mom. They seem to handle the stress better. This is their second shot. So the reaction seems a little bit more, we just see more of a reaction than we do on the first shot. But yeah, they're on mom, so they're not stressed out. And then they're pretty much recovered back to normal by the time they wean. So we haven't seen any differences on how the pigs start either by putting that second shot prior to weaning. 
Christine, I, I don't remember if you guys have much PERS in your system, but I got to imagine for systems that do, even stable ones, many times those PERS are serial converting in that mid-nursery time period. And I got to imagine staying away from having to do that stressful event and mass vaccination and getting vaccination reactions during that mid-nursery time. There's got to be a benefit there as well. Yeah, absolutely. This study would have been done primarily on PERS naive pigs, but we do see some PERS and it's been the same thing, you know, exactly like you're saying that three weeks placed, they're not going to respond well to a vaccine at that point anyway, when they're zero converting. So it really has made a, a big difference on our PERS positive flows as well. Yeah, another one that I thought was really kind of interesting was you guys' approach to ventilation systems and your programs. And, and maybe just talk us through some of the improvements. You know, what did you use to make those improvements and some of the things that you've learned and implemented over the past few years? So we've got a big biosecurity culture in our system. So through that, we implemented some cameras around our critical control points and said, hey, you know, this technology is useful for biosecurity compliance. Maybe we could use this in some other areas. So made the decision to install cameras in our nurseries. So every room had a camera installed where you could view pretty much all the pigs in the room. You know, a huge benefit to being able to look at laying patterns and pig behavior. We've got team members there during the day, but when they go home at three or four in the afternoon, there's really no eyes on those pigs. So what's happening between 4 p.m. and 6 a.m.? You know, temperatures drop. We really didn't know just in general, was our ventilation adequate and were we chilling pigs and causing more issues than we thought? So we found out actually these are brand new barns, but we didn't know how to ventilate. So it was a, a true team effort. Uh, a lot of our, our managers and team members would watch cameras and watch laying patterns, and then they would go in and make adjustments and then go back and rewatch cameras and laying patterns and saw that we were chilling pigs and we were drafting pigs. So made quite a few changes to inlet settings and we had to bubble wrap some inlets. We had these big rooms. I don't, I forget 20 inlets per room and they're nice brand new inlets, but when they're only cracked open a little bit because you're at one CFM per pig, there's a lot of leakage. So we did it had to go in and bubble wrap some of the inlets because there was just so much air dropping out the bottom of the inlets and then chilling pigs directly under them, which just happened to be where the mats are, feeders are. Yeah, it was a lot of trial and error that way. And then just seeing where these barns are tight. So we're pulling air from the hallway around the doors. So we went in and did put some weather stripping around the doors, realized, hey, maybe we have too much fan power on right when these pigs are first place. So we're able to reduce our minimum vent. And then just temperature settings in general. We were used to starting pigs at a cooler temperature, realized, okay, this barn, this pig, maybe we need to start them a little higher. So we did increase our temperature settings as well, starting pigs around 80, 86, 87 degrees instead of the cooler temperatures. Oh, that's interesting. So from the bubble wrapping standpoint, you just has leakage around them. So you were just using fewer inlets, tightening the room up. Like you say, I really appreciated the thing about putting the protectors under the doors to prevent the draft from coming in the hallway. You're really just trying to make sure that you were forcing the air through the few inlets that were necessary and not getting a little bit of dribble of air from all the inlets. Yeah, absolutely. In the south farms, we have a lot, we filter our farms. So we're used to looking at leaks and, and foaming around inlets. So I think that helped us too, to, to really look at, okay, where do we have air leaking in? Where is our 
where do we think our air is going? Where is it actually going? Using that bubble wrap to prevent their bifold inlets in this case. So there was air dropping right through the middle where there was a little bit of crack in the bifold instead of coming out the sides. By bubble wrapping, we were able to increase the velocity coming out of the inlet and get good air mixing rather than just a cold air dropping down and chilling the pigs. Hard to know that without being able to, you know, visually observe those pigs utilizing the cameras. Right. So pretty cool. One of our team members, he was analyzing what happens in the room as far as temperature and humidity during the day when we do have team members there. So a lot of times part of a daily observation will be you go in, walk the pigs, whatever, and then you need to record high temperature, low temperature and humidity. Well, when they're in there observing the pigs, pigs are getting stirred up, respiration goes up, humidity goes up, temperature goes up. So it seems like maybe we have a humid barn or a hot barn when you've got a person actually in the room. And that's what our our curves, the recording from the sensors in the barn would have told us was maybe we're low temperature, low humidity, somebody goes in and we see this huge spike in temperature and humidity. So when we are making adjustments just from a person being in the room, we were overcorrecting. So overventilating as a response to what they perceived as high humidity or high temperature, and then subsequently ended up chilling those pigs on the back end because when they're back to their resting respiration, resting temp in the barn, that extra ventilation was too much for them. The combination of using the technology, using our cameras, and then also just working with our teams in the farm to understand that concept. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. As we think about how all these things have kind of impacted your guys' system, I did notice in your presentation that you did talk about medication costs, and I imagine that was another one that you looked at, stripping things out and then slowly adding things back in. How do you guys go about making those type of decisions, and what did you ultimately wind up coming up with? So medication costs, when we were having the enteric challenges because the barns weren't clean or having a E. coli or a parasuis break following a vaccination event, we're having to reach for antibiotics. And a lot of that was feed planned feed medication pulses to deal with that. So not only were we looking at the cost, but also are we being judicious with our use? We've kind of had a goal of I wouldn't say antibiotic reduction, but better usage. And if we can find an alternative to an antibiotic, if it's something simple as using a detergent, we need to reach for that rather than hiding our sins with feed medication or water medication. Prior to all of this, the diets were heavily medicated in the nursery and some in finishing. So part of this process was we had to pull absolutely everything out. Our nutritionist was involved as well, looking at, hey, do we need to make a more complex diet? So having some plasma or plasma-like products in there, in those nursery phases, that helps too. So we were able to pretty much pull everything out. So today in a healthy flow, we would be completely feed-grade antibiotic-free. Obviously, if there's a PERS challenge or something, we'd have to reach for antibiotics in that situation. But so part of that was quantifying it and measuring antibiotic usage. So that was a goal that we set last year was we need to know what antibiotics we're using on a milligram per pig basis on all of our sites. So we do, we're benchmarking that against ourselves. We're benchmarking against others. It's been a good measurable to something that we hadn't measured before. And then obviously the cost savings are there as well. So is that in the nurseries and the finishers both? How how did you guys wind up with that? 
Yeah, it, it started in the nurseries. As we're going through all of these processes of sanitation, ventilation, and vaccination changes, we realized we could scale back. So we started, we had enteric challenges. So we had enteric medication in there. So it was a Mechadox pulse. And then we had really more respiratory challenges. So then we switched to a, a Denegard CTC pulse. And so it was the same process of comparing mortality and growth with these different medications. And so the ones that had the fewer grams of antibiotic per pig, best performance and lowest cost won out every time. So each time we stepped back, we stepped back the duration that we fed and we stepped back the amount that we fed to finally today landing on nothing. Finishers, we pulled everything out. We just never put anything back in. It seemed like we could get this pig started off well in the nursery that really the finisher took care of itself barring any lateral health challenges. Oh, very interesting. Yeah, fantastic. Well, can't thank you enough for sharing all the things that you've learned and Delaney mentioned it too. I think what it really strikes me is, is so much of the stuff is just making sure we've got the basics covered, but I appreciate you guys' thoroughness and looking at the data to be able to verify that the changes that you made are actually there and, and we're able to be implementable as well. So, I mean, I think that really serves as a good reminder, I think for, you know, for our listeners to say it's, I really appreciated your comment about using antibiotics to cover up our, you know, our management sins. But so much of it just goes back to making sure that the feed, water, and the air are perfect in those barns. Make sure we get everything set up and that the pig will really kind of take care of itself after that point. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's kind of our motto. Feed, water, air, back to basics. And you know, the last thing we like to to share as a company is read the pig. So just taking time to see what the pig is telling us is the pig comfortable? Do we have feed? Do we have water? The pig's going to tell us. So using that as a coaching tool for team members too, to really think about what they're doing when they're taking care of pigs every day. So Christine, I think a good place to end is here on the PigX podcast. We like to ask our guests for a couple of take-home messages, things that those listening can implement, try, or just think on a little bit more. So what are some good take-home messages for our listeners? Yeah, I think first, try something and record it. I think our speaker earlier today said, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You're not staying the same. So being willing to take that chance and document what you do. Another one that really resonates with us is read the pig. Look at what it's telling you and respond to it. And then lastly, for us, less was more. We did the little things right every day and saw a big impact. We didn't have to spend tons of money on all these different interventions and souped up diets. It really was getting back to basics, just meeting the pig's needs. Well, listeners, as always, we appreciate you tuning in for the Pig X podcast, but hit subscribe. Starting next month, we've got a special four-part series focused on swine heat stress. So let's take a look at what's to come. Everything was in the context of heat stress. and It was just a matter of what were the experiments going to look like and what were the outcomes going to be. So we knew that heat stress was going to be the focus from the beginning. When we think about specifically heat stress and the boar, um, when an animal, any animal experiences heat, they end up panting. So they do things to modify their behaviors typically first to adjust to the um, increase in environmental temperature and their body temperature continues to go up, they start to actually 
divert blood flow to their extremities to try to dissipate that heat that's kind of building up in their core body. Well, that does it for this episode. I'm your host, Delaney Howell, and this has been the PigX Podcast. PigX is a national podcast hosted by the Pig Livability Project partners at Iowa State University, Kansas State University, and Purdue, and supported by the Iowa Pork Industry Center. For more information on the project, head to www.piglivability.org or to inquire directly with questions regarding the project, email ipic at iastate.edu. Big X, ideas in the swine industry worth sharing.